in a moment, Jacob's going to come and preach to us. Um, but just as he does, let me read you one more verse, this time from the start of Ephesians. Ephesians 2.17 says that, talking about the situation in, in Ephesus, says that, and he, that is Christ, came and preached peace to you. He came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. I wonder if you're ready for that this morning, for Christ himself to come and preach to you. That's what scripture says preaching is. It's quite astounding, isn't it? Um, when you look at the person who's going to preach, especially if it's somebody who looks like me, that's not a comment on Jacob. Um, and then sometimes when you hear them, you think, is this Christ preaching? Well, that's what he promises to do as his word is faithfully preached. Christ promises to be with us this morning and to minister to our hearts. So let's pray uh, as Jacob comes to preach to us. Father, we thank you for your living and active word. We thank you that through humble servants, you yourself come to minister to your people. And so we ask that you would do that this morning and that you would help us receive this word by faith. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, thank you, David. Um, this morning, we're going to be looking at the shortest book in the Old Testament, Obadiah. So I'll, again, give you 30 seconds to find that. It's maybe not the most well-thumbed uh, book in the Bible for you. Um, before this week, I had never studied the book of Obadiah, really. I think I'd maybe heard it read out, and I'd definitely never heard a sermon on it either. Um, so I thought since this week, Dom is away, speaking at a weekend away, it'd be an excellent opportunity uh, to have a look at it, and at the very least, you'd be able to say you've heard a sermon um, on the book of Obadiah. Um, we're not given much autobi autobiography. We don't know much about Obadiah. <laughs> the name Obadiah means servant of the Lord. There's no real attention drawn to Obadiah as an individual at all. Instead, all the attention is focused on the vision, the prophecy he has to share. Announced at the very start of uh, verse 1, which states the vision of Obadiah. So we know what his name means, and the book concerns a vision, which starts in verse 1 with, Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. Edom, or Esau, as it's referred to throughout the prophecy, is a nation. Uh, but it's a message that doesn't seem to have been delivered to the Edomites directly, but to the people of Judah, the people of God. Obadiah is likely amongst those people, and as we shall see in a moment, they are in a very precarious and difficult situation. So it's possible it's being delivered through the nation of Judah to remind them God's mind concerning his enemies. The book seems to be uh, divided into two sections, the first in verses 1 to 14, focusing on Edom. Edom is going to experience the judgment of God, as we've read, through military defeat and economic collapse, and the agents of this judgment are the nations of verse 1. We have heard a report from the Lord, and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up, let us rise against her, uh, that's Edom, for battle. And the battle is going to be victorious for the enemies of uh, Edom. And Edom itself is going to be brought to destruction. But although the, nation, although the nations are the agent, the real prime mover behind this all is the Lord, which is a theme that runs throughout these verses. He is, he is sending the nation. 
he has dispatched them, his messenger to raise them up, to fight against the people. And it becomes explicitly clear in verse 4. Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. So the judgment that is coming to Edom is a judgment that is brought by God. But then secondly, in verse 15 to 21, we see the prophecy broaden out, the message to all nations, and it moves further along the timeline to a time of universal judgment, when deliverance will only be found, as verse 17 says, on Mount Zion, and when God's universal kingdom will be eternally and totally established. For some context to this, um, Edom was a thorn in Israel's flesh throughout the Old Testament throughout the entire time period. They were not simply hostile neighbors who happened to live in the southeast of the Dead Sea, but they were the descendants of Esau. And if you know the story of the life of Jacob from Genesis, you will remember the story of Esau and Jacob, where we see the twin boys in conflict, from the jostling in their mother's womb, continuing in conflict for their whole of their lives. And the two boys became two nations separated from each, each other, one nation stronger than the other, and with the older serving the younger. So when the infant nation of Jacob, what we now call Israel, left Egypt in the time of Moses for the promised land, they had to pass through the land of Edom, where Esau's descendants had settled, and where they too had become a great nation. And as the Israelites wanted to pass through the land, you can read this story in Numbers uh, chapter 20, Moses sought permission from them and promised even to pay for everything they used in the way of crops, and certainly for any water that they would drink for their people and their cattle in the, as they passed through on foot. He sent a special messenger, a sort of ambassador, to Edom, and they were refused. They would not let them pass through their land. And from that moment on, in the Old Testament, Edom became the archetype enemy of God and his people. They became representatives of those who will not bow the knee to the Lord or acknowledge his sovereign sovereign. Sovereignty. I'm really struggling with words this morning. Um, now, Obadiah seems to have been given his message to Edom very soon after the fall of Jerusalem. We now must wind the tape forward a great way to the year 587 BC, when the southern kingdom, Judah, which is all that's left of Israel following the destruction of the northern kingdom, is besieged by the Babylonians, and the city of Jerusalem falls to them. They destroy not only the city, but also the temple of the Lord and God's people are carried off into exile. This is the day of disaster that was referred to so much in verses 11 to 14, in that very vivid description. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. Edom was rejoicing over the people of, Israel, the people of Judah on the day of their destruction. They shouldn't have, but this is what they were doing. They were boasting so much in their day of trouble. They, sh they were marching through the gates, of the, the gates of his people on the day of their disaster. That is the way with conquerors, isn't it? You should not have been looking down on the calamity on the day of disaster or seizing their wealth in the day of that disaster or waiting at the crossroads to cut down the fugitives and hand over the survivors to the enemies, but that's what they were doing. Obadiah's prophecy seems to be set fairly soon after all this has happened. He's probably amongst the exiles in Babylon, whereas Ezekiel was prophesying at a similar time to give the people of God a perspective on what has happened. 
because it was particularly bitter that Esau should destroy Jacob since God had promised that he would keep Israel and that they will be his people forever. So how are we to look at this situation? Well, if you have a Bible there, if you could turn with me to Psalm 137, which is one of the exile Psalms, and this can just bring home to us what the people of Judah must have been thinking as they surveyed the treachery of Esau towards them. So if you have one three seven, one, Psalm 137 there, it begins, By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. This is a psalm of mourning. As they've gone into exile, into Babylon, thinking back on all that was theirs and that has now been destroyed. And it's full of sadness. Verse 4 of Psalm 137, How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? But look on at verse 7. Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites, the day of Jerusalem, how they say, how they said, lay it bare, lay it bare, down to its foundations. So what we must realize is that the animosity of the centuries has peaked at this point of Jerusalem's destruction. And Edom comes in with the Babylonian army, behind the Babylonian army, gloating over the destruction of Jacob's children. And I think this dating of Obadiah's prophecy is con- confirmed by the fact that very similar language is used in the prophecy of Jeremiah and of Ezekiel, who were the prophets at the time of the exile. So that's what's going on. Edom has fulfilled its function. It's always been the archetype of the enemies of the Lord and his people. And here you see it most in its most clear and complete form. They have just gloated over the destruction of the temple and God's people. And the situation then that Obadiah addresses are one of apparent victory for Edom against the Lord and against Jacob and a situation of total defeat and destruction. But of course, the vision that Obadiah receives reverses all that for the right at the start and right at the end of the prophecy. The message could hardly be clearer. Here are the top and start, the start and end of the chapter, or the bookend, um, as you might call them. Well, I say chapter, there's only one chapter. Um, Verse one, thus says the Lord concerning Edom. Here is the Lord who is sovereign. This is the Lord. That's the point. And look at the end of verse 21. And the kingdom shall be the Lord's. Hebrew, which this would have been written in, was usually just has two tenses, basically. A tense of completed action and a tense of incomplete action. And that last verse, and the kingdom shall be, a lo- be the Lord's, is a tense of incomplete action, which is not meant to say one day that this will happen, but to say this is what is happening, and this will never end. That's why when God says, I am who I am, he's not saying, I am at this moment who I am, and you must guess whether I'll be like that in the future. He is saying, I am who I am now, and always will be. It will never end. And that's what's happening here. The kingdom shall be the Lord's. It's not saying we'll look one day and we'll see God has won. He is the Lord now. And he never will cease to be the Lord. The kingdom will always be the Lord's. Now that's what Judah needs to know. Languishing in exile in Babylon. And that is what Edom needs to know as well. As God warns her of her short-lived exaltation. Imagining somehow that the kingdom is hers. And so we begin to get towards some of the message of Obadiah for us. Because it's always the assumption of those who oppose God that they are in control of everything. They're running the show and they've got God on the run. But Obadiah has a message for that sort of thinking. In a situation of hopelessness when they are experiencing God's disciplining, punishing hand, 
they may well be tempted to imagine it's the end of them. But it isn't. And there's a message for the people who are the enemies of God, who will not submit to his sovereignty, who seem to be successful, who seem to have it all going for them. So let's look at these uh, two themes briefly over the next few minutes. So two points for this morning. Firstly, God's enemies will be justly destroyed. God's enemies will be justly destroyed. The heart of the problem for Edom is their refusal to acknowledge Yahweh, the Lord as sovereign, and their insistence on elevating themselves to be to the throne as all their confidence is in what they have done and what they can achieve. We see this very clearly at the start of the prophecy. If you turn back with me to verses 3 and 4, the pride of your heart has deceived you. It's an important sentence. Pride always does that. Pride goes before the fall. We're easily deceived by pride, and sooner or later we come crashing down. But their pride has been fed over a very long time. They'd built impregnable fortresses that seemed to be impossible for any foreign armies to overcome, which was helped, as Edom was known for dwelling in rocky mountains southeast of the Dead Sea. Uh, Some of you may have heard of the ancient city of Petra, where entry was only through the narrowest gully. It looked as though to be a city that could never be conquered. They seemed to be utterly secure in their mountain fortress, and their pride led them to rely on themselves. Who can bring me? Da- who can led them to rely on themselves? Who can bring me down to the ground? They thought. Interestingly, archaeologists and other historians have found that in all the records of the people of Edom, there was no reference whatsoever to any god that they believed in. No sort of dependence on any force beyond themselves. All the records of Edomite culture that have been discovered show them to be a people so self-sufficient, so arrogant, that they had all the answers in themselves. It's almost unique among the peoples of the world, really. They were their own gods, and they certainly weren't going to bow the knee to the God of Jacob. But their fatal mistake was to forget that God is sovereign and that he has a message for his super-confident enemies. Verse 4, though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. And the way when in which he brings them down is then described. If the thieves came at night, they'd leave something, wouldn't they? If the grape pickers came, they'd leave a few grapes. But Esau is going to be ransacked and pillaged and destroyed. So that all that they rely on is useless. They're like matchsticks in the hand of God. They're relying upon their fortress. They're relying upon their allies, verse 7. But all your allies will turn against you. They'll force you to the border. They will conspire in your exile, and your friends will deceive and overpower you. They're relying on their own wisdom, which was much renowned in the ancient times. But he's going to destroy the wise man and and the understanding of Esau. And they're relying on their war machine, verse 9. Your warriors. But they will be terrified, and they will be cut down in slaughter. I will bring you down, declares the Lord. And if God is going to do that, then no human treasure, no human ally, no human wisdom, no human military machine can prevent it, can it? Because you dare to think that the kingdom is yours, that you could turn in violence against your brother and be the cheerleader on the day of his destruction, God is going to move against Edom and utterly destroy it. Now let's take a jump now into our contemporary world because the Bible was written to teach us the principles of God's character, which is unchanging, and how he deals with human nature, which is also unchanging. 
and we see this Edom syndrome all around us. People are often active in their rebellion against God, and like the Edomites, they rejoice to see the people of God going under, and to them it can be a huge source of satisfaction. There is no limit to the boasting and the glorying of those who want to see the church and the gospel and the word of God destroyed and forgotten, just like Edom watching the fall of Jerusalem. And that is why the judgment of God is not only inevitable against them, but it's also just. But the, the people of God need to be aware of this. If, they, if they're not to sink into unbelief, they need to know that those who oppose them, the will of his sovereignty shall be cut off forever. Historically, of course, it happened because when the Lord speaks, it's always fulfilled. The land of the Edomites was overrun by the Nabataeans, and those who remained fled in exile. They escaped, some of them escaped to the land due south of Judah, where they became known for a few de decades as the Edumeans, uh, the people of whom Herod in the New Testament was a member of. He wasn't just a member, he was an Edumean king. But by the time Herod was king, they'd lost their nationhood. They'd lost their identity, and it was never really recovered. Edom was destroyed. This shows, the this, this scripture shows what will happen to all of God's enemies. But as we fast forward today, to today, we can struggle to believe that will happen. As we see the enemies of God around us supposedly winning, and we just can't see how it will end, it can be a real struggle in those challenging times. It's the same here. You see the picture of Judah dragged off into exile in Babylon. This God of Israel, this God of moral absolutes, this God who talks in terms of black and white, has finally been conquered by the Babylonians. And it shows that those Jews, they're just as weak and vulnerable as anybody else. Well, then, if you're a healthy pagan in Edom, then no worries. You've got it. But God is sovereign. And you may build your nest in the stars, but it's not beyond his reach. See, that's the issue Obadiah is bringing to us. Who, who rules? Who's in charge? And that's something we must decide and build our lives on every day we live. Edom's mistake was to attribute, attribute God's discipline of Judah to their own power. They thought they were doing it, but no. God is ruling in the affairs of man, and God is working, working everything out according to his purpose. Just a word of uh, contemporary application, because I think it's becoming clear, isn't it, that to too many of us, that many of us feel like Judah in exile. The contemporary church in the West is experiencing discipline and judgment that maybe we never experienced before. We see it within our churches, Enemies of the gospel exulting over the church's outdatedness and irrelevance. See it all around us, plenty of people in our Western culture who can applaud the imminent disappearance of Christianity, who despises the church in its day of trouble. And sometimes they are close cousins to the believing people of God, just as Esau and Jacob had started out with the same mother, even within the churches of the world. Some despise the biblical gospel, they reject the authority of God's word, they are self-confident as they applaud the destruction of the old way and apparently are so secure in their powerful alliances and human wisdom that they can say, I dismiss all that. Now we've come of age, we don't need all that Bible stuff. They are prepared to laugh at the naive person who believes and obeys God's word. They proclaim how long and loud, how out of date and childish the gospel of Christ's death on the cross is. And so what does the church, the true church, do? Do we sit in abject surrender, wishing that we've been born in another generation? 
Do we sing our songs in private so no one will notice? Or do we take Obadiah's message to heart? God's enemies will be justly destroyed. And then we see the second point that is greater than the first. Yes, God's enemies will be justly destroyed, but God's people will be gloriously restored. God's people will be gloriously restored. Now, I said that in verse 15, the prophecy is broader. It moves on to the end times, to the end of history, and to the entire universe, not just Edom. The writings of wrongs by the God of justice and truth. Edom is not alone in facing judgment in verse 15. The day of the Lord is near for all nations. The reckoning day is coming, not just for all nations as political entities, but for all of us as individuals living within those nations. The whole of humanity will stand before the judgment throne of the creator. And Edom is just one example at a point of history of a universal and inescapable principle that the justice of God, which reflects his very character, cries out. In verse 15, as you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. And so verse 16 pictures those alien armies invading Jerusalem, ransacking the temple, drinking themselves stupid on the mountain of God. And God says, yes, I know you did that on the day of disaster for my people. I know that, you, I know that and that will go in human history. The nations will go on drinking and drinking, but they will be as if they've never been. The tide of God's judgment will come and sweep it all away. The conquerors who destroyed the temple simply, were simply initiating the process of their own destruction. But the place of God's judgment becomes for his people the very place of saving deliverance. God has destroyed Jerusalem as the punishment of the faithfulness of those who claim to be his people, but he hasn't finished with them. He loves them too much to, get away, to let them get away with their sin, but he's not going to let them go. He's committed to them by an everlasting love and by a covenant that cannot be broken. So verse 17, verse 17 is a light of hope, of encouragement during this blackness. But in Mount Zion there shall be those who escape, and it shall be holy. Mount Zion is a picture of where God dwells. It speaks of heaven. It speaks of God dwelling amongst his people. And now it's lying in ruins as Obadiah gives his message. But it's only the location in which deliverance can be found because it's the only place where the righteous wrath of God can be appeased by the blood of sacrifice. Why is it Mount Zion? Well, of course, it's looking forward to the day when a man went from Mount Zion out through the city gate to a hill called Golgotha and died in our place on a cross. So as the prophecy moves forward, it says, what is the answer to this judgment is going, that is going to fall against Edom because of their opposition to God? His hand has been upon them because of their faithlessness. Is there no hope for humanity? Yes, yes, there is. There is, there is in the deliverance that comes from Mount Zion, that holy mountain where the houses of Jacob possess its inheritance. So verse 17 and 18 give us that characteristic, that biblical blend of judgment and rescue. The house of Jacob will be a fire, the house of Joseph a flame, but the house of Esau will be stubble. Deliverance and restoration which becomes the agent of judgment and destruction for Esau and for all the nations that oppose themselves to the word of the Lord. And the verse 19 and 20 takes, on, takes that on further as the, as the scattered people of God. Those who have been sent out from the land of promise in the exile are gathered to resettle the land 
and indeed not just to resettle a narrow land, but to spill out beyond its borders, to bring stability and peace to the Lord's government, even to the mountains of Esau. For the people of God from the Negev coming back to Jerusalem will then occupy the mountains of Esau, verse 19. And the people from the foothills will possess the land of the Philistines and all those lands that have been occupied by the conquerors who in the Old Testament history have been God's agents of discipline to his people. They will be retaken by the people of God. Verse 20, this company of Israelites who are in Canaan, they will possess the land as far as Zarephath. That's way beyond the border. Up north, and the exiles from Jerusalem who are in Sepharad, they will possess the towns of Negev way down to the border, down in the south. They're going to spread through the whole land. God's restored and renewed people, and in that day when deliverance comes from Mount Zion, then you will know that the kingdom will be the Lord's, always. There was a partial fulfillment of this after the exile when some did return to resettle all the land and to rebuild the temple and the city. But the decree of Cyrus was only a pale foreshadowing of the real end of the exile. And if you know the Bible, you'll, you'll know that the New Testament teaches us that the real end of the exile is when John the Baptist comes into Galilee, <clears throat> preaching the good news that God is about to send his deliverer, the Lord Jesus, who follows sin after, declaring that he has, become, he has come to bring the good news of the kingdom of the Lord, that the, kingdoms belong to, the kingdom belongs to God, that it is possible to be a member of the kingdom by God's grace and calling on men and women to repent, to stop being enemies and to believe the good news. Now, that is the spiritual fulfillment of what, he, of what is given here in physical land terms. And that's what's been going on ever since. As the gospel is spread throughout the whole world, for in Jesus, the deliverance only comes from Zion. He is the supreme servant of the Lord, who brought about the creation of a new covenant people from every land, from every nation through his death and his resurrection. Because it's at the cross that wrath and mercy meet. And it's in the empty tomb of Jesus that the irrefutable testimony that deliverance has come. And the house of Jacob is now not a narrow national identity, but a mighty multinational group of people whom God has laid his hand on and brought to newness of life through Christ. It's through him that the eternal kingdom has broken into time and space and that we begin to see the good news spreading throughout the earth as the church is planted in all the world. And even better, this partial fulfillment is the guarantee of the ultimate and total fulfillment. For when we move from time to eternity, we see the eternal kingdom secure, where the Lord is sovereign forever and, every, and ever, and the kingdom will always be the Lord's. That's the message that the, restora the restoration after the exile brought, that the gospel of Jesus brought, that the spread of the church brought, that eternity will come from. There is only deliverance from the righteous wrath of holy God on Mount Zion. That's where the temple was. That's where the sacrifices were made. That's what the cross of Jesus has done for us. So Obadiah presents this challenge, which worldview are you going to live by? In a world where God is sovereign over everything or, when man, or where man thinks he's in control? Who rules? Are we going to live as if humanity has, the dest has his destiny in his own hands? And that God is therefore irrelevant? We do not have our destiny in our hands, do we? Human, human life is incredibly fragile. We only need to look out into the world today to see that. None of us know when we will be called into the presence of God. So who rules in your life? Is he in control, working out his sovereign will in your life? Even through the apparent disasters that we may face, 
and even in the church in its apparent exile? What do you think? Do you really think God is in control or is God sitting on the sidelines? Impotent to deal with the largely faithful, faithless church and an arrogant, truculent world and wringing his hands and saying, what am I going to do? I don't think so. We have the book of Obadiah precisely for this purpose, to teach us that he rules in the affairs of humanity and he's working out his eternal purpose. That Edom will always be brought down from its pride and its arrogance and its human strongholds. And that though he may discipline the church because we are willful and rebellious and disobedient and foolish, nevertheless, God will restore his people. He is going to bring us through to the new creation. He is going to accomplish his purpose. He is going to work through the, all the changing tides of human history and all our self-confident, arrogant human choices. There's only one destiny, and that is to acknowledge that the kingdom is the Lord's. So God's enemies will be justly destroyed. And the fact that he delays is evidence of his long-suffering patience and his compassionate mercy. But God's people will be gloriously restored. His kingdom will come in all its fullness on, on, on Mount Zion. There will be deliverance. And the house of Jacob will possess its inheritance. But you and I have got to choose now and tomorrow and Tuesday and through the rest of this week what worldview we are going to live by. Listening to the world's wisdom will only harden our hearts because the world's wisdom is set up in proud self-sufficiency. And if the church comes to the world's wisdom, then all that church must look forward to is the chastening, disciplining, judging hand of God. But if we really believe this message, then we shall humble ourselves and confess again that the kingdom is the Lord's and that he is sovereign and that deliverance is coming. And that is a great source of rejoicing. Amen. Uh, why don't I pray before the band comes and leads us in one, one more song? Father God, we give thanks as we open up the message of Obadiah. Lord, we give thanks for your word and its use for teaching, rebuking, and for all of us. Lord, we pray as we go away from this week, as we think about this message, maybe as we face challenges and feel like we are in exile, feel like there is no end in sight, that the Lord's enemies have won, that we will remember Obadiah, and that his message that the Lord is in control of all human affairs, that the Lord's enemies will be justly destroyed, and God's people will be restored. So Father, I pray that that will be a great encouragement as we go out from this place. So Father, be with us now. Amen.